Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, Ezra chapter 5. If ever there was proof that history is cyclical and that God patterns repeat themselves endlessly, then we ought to readily see the fascinating similarities between the challenges that the Jews of Ezra's day faced trying to reestablish their unique Torah-based Hebrew culture in their own historic homeland after years of being barred from it with what the Jews of modern day Israel face. And as we read Ezra and shortly the prophet Haggai and next week Zechariah, we can't help but see that 2,500 years later, the names may have changed, but the place, Jerusalem, remains the same. The social, the political, the religious issues remain the same. And in many cases, the ethnic groups involved even remain the same. We see that then as now, there was a great political opposition to the Jews rebuilding their temple, to reestablishing Jerusalem as their capital, to repopulating the land, and all this was coming from a number of sources. The agendas of each of these opposition groups were varying, so their reasons for objecting to the return of the Jews were different, but of course they were all self-serving. However, there was common point, one common point. By opposing God's people, they were, in one way or another, all enemies of God's plan of redemption, even if they weren't conscious of it. And that is always a perilous stance to take, even if it's done in ignorance. Let's briefly sum up where we stand at this point in the book of Ezra. A group that we shall call the Sumerians began to oppose the Jews the minute the first wave of them returned to Judah from their Babylonian exile. The Jews came peacefully, but at the same time their intentions ran afoul of what the current inhabitants and the leadership of the nearby villages and towns had in their minds. The Jews had returned to rebuild the temple, reconstitute the priesthood and reinstate a Torah-based society, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem into a, a fortress complex, to reclaim lost land and property, and to repopulate Judah with Jews. Those who lived in or near to Judah at the time of the Jews' return were a mixed batch consisting of descendants of Jews who had somehow avoided deportation during those days of Nebuchadnezzar as well as some Gentile foreigners who had moved in and it also included remnants of those ten northern tribes most of whom had intermarried with Gentiles. This last group was the result of the Assyrian exile 
of the ten northern tribes that had occurred some 130 years before the Babylonian exile of the Jews of Judah and almost 200 years before their release and their return. And it was really this group that was probably the most antagonistic to these returning Jews because they still felt a kinship to the Jews and thus an entitlement to use the temple and to use the altar and to be part of the religious institution of the Jews since so many of them had come from Hebrew ancestors. See, this is why in Ezra 4.2 the Sumerians could say to Zerubbabel, let us build along with you, for we seek your God, we do just as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshar Hadon, the king of Asher, who brought us here. Now the king of Asher is the same thing as the king of Assyria. And when the Sumerians say these words to Zerubbabel, they are factually correct. They were brought here, here meaning the area of Samaria, capital of the ten northern tribes, by the king of Assyria. That is, the segment of them who were Gentiles were forcibly imported to the former Israelite tribal districts of the north to replace the Ephraim Israelites of the ten tribes who had been forcibly deported and scattered to the furthest reaches of Asia and northern Africa. Yet, the scriptures are clear that for a multitude of reasons, some small fragments of the ten tribes managed to stay, but most of them seem to have intermarried with these Gentile immigrants over the past couple of centuries. What we have to understand is that going back to a time before David, the northern ten tribes had turned to idolatry. Jeroboam, who was the king, who first insisted on setting up a new center of worship and sacrifice and an alternate priesthood and religious system away from Jerusalem. But even worse, he ordered that a golden calf was to become the physical image and representation of Jehovah God of Israel and that the ten northern tribes were obliged to worship it. And since the ten tribes insisted that they were still worshiping Jehovah, again depicted as a golden calf, they argued that they remained just as much Hebrew and in God's favor, just as pious and in the right in their religious observances as the Jews of Judah who stuck mostly to the Torah. Now obviously the Jews of Judah didn't agree with this reasoning. And so a deep religious schism arose between the northern and the southern tribes that was never remedied. Even when David and Solomon ruled a united Israel, of all twelve tribes their rule was tenuous, it was frail over those ten northern tribal districts. Thus, almost immediately upon King Solomon's death, a civil war broke out as the ten northern tribes wanted to secede from that twelve-tribe union and to regain self-rule. Not for three thousand years has the ten tribes of the north reconciled with the two southern tribes called Judah. So these mixed-breed 
Samarians who came to Zerubbabel came with two strikes against them as far as the Jews were concerned when they showed up. The Levite priests and the Jewish leadership, well, they fully understood that what the Samarians meant by their supposedly worshipping the same God as the Jews, that was double talk. That was nonsense. The worship of the Samarians was so twisted, so polluted with paganism, that there was no way for Zerubbabel to accept that they were all worshipping the same God. He was absolutely correct in this assessment. Now, not only do we have a similar challenge today in Israel among the many distinct sects of Jews, it's also present in Christianity. It would take a full day's lecture only to scratch the surface of the widely varying religious beliefs of of, uh, various segments of the Jewish population of modern Israel. But suffice it to say that the Talmudic or the rabbinical Judaism, the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox, is broken up into several differing sects. And then there are the non-rabbinical forms of Judaism, such as the Karaites, that stick to the biblical Torah and do not accept the Talmud. There are Jews who are atheists, but who follow some Jewish traditions and customs. There are Reformed Jews who claim to be spiritual, but yet they don't believe in the divine authority of the Torah or the Bible, nor do they believe in any particular God, but rather they follow kind of a manufactured Jewish religious philosophy. And finally, the conservative Jews, who are more religious than the Reformed Jews, but much less so than the Orthodox, and who accept the God of Israel as their God. They accept some teachings of the rabbis, but not others. There are even the deeply divided Messianic Jews who accept a mixture of Judaism, the Bible, and Christ as Messiah. And then there are variations of all of these. And yet, Christianity comes in far more forms and flavors than Judaism does with some denominations believing that Christ was no more than a marvelous humanitarian and pacifist religious philosopher on the order of Gandhi. Others deify Jesus' human mother, Mary. Most Christians accept the newer half of God's word is relevant, the older half is irrelevant. There are those who believe that quite literally the young God of the New Testament has replaced the old God of the Old Testament. And we have another large denomination who believes that there is a third testament that is kind of a book of corrections of the first two. So it trumps both the Old and New Testaments. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. The splits and the fractious nature of tradition and doctrine-based Christianity makes unity impossible as things stand today. Thus, Christians tend to feel about these varying denominations much the same as Zerubbabel frankly stated to the Sumerians. You and we have nothing in common. Therefore, the few weeks of relative peace and calm that the Jews received when returning home were quickly replaced with a cold war of sorts. 
from physical threats to the bribery of local politicians, from economic subterfuge to complaining to the revolving door of Persian kings, the Sumerians stopped at nothing to frustrate the Jews' plans for rebuilding the temple and reconstituting the Torah-based lifestyle that they longed for. Ezra chapter 4, which covered about 120 years of history, shows us that both sides were pretty dug in for the long haul. The Sumerians were determined that the Jews would never complete their temple, at least not without their okay and their cooperation, and thus fundamentally change the current Sumerian-dominated social climate of Judah. And the Jews were just as determined that someday a new temple and a renewed Jewish society would happen, and they'd do it without outside involvement. I'm going to remind you that in chapter 4 we established that the timeline and sequence of events can be a little bit difficult to follow until we notice that it's divided into three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 5, and it deals with the same, uh, with the time period from Persian king Cyrus, who emancipated the Jews, to King Darius, who came three kings after Cyrus. And the matter at hand in that time frame is the rebuilding of the temple. The second section was verses 6 through 23. That section dealt with the time frame of the reigns of Xerxes, who followed Darius, and then his successor and son, Artaxerxes. But the matter at hand in this section is no longer about the temple. It's about rebuilding the crucial defensive walls of Jerusalem. And then the final section is verse 24. And it returns us to the matter of rebuilding the temple and to the time frame of Cyrus to Darius. Now, as we get ready to enter Ezra chapter 5, we'll be continuing in the era of King Darius of Persia. And the issue, therefore, is rebuilding the temple. However, today we're not going to read much of Ezra 5. Only the first two verses. And they read as follows. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Judeans in Jerusalem and Yehuda, Jerusalem and Judah, and they prophesied to them in the name of the God of Israel. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Yotzadak, began rebuilding the house of God in Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God, helping them. <clears throat> so we learn from those first two verses of Ezra 5 that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying at this time and they were directly involved with trying to kick start the temple rebuilding project which had which was currently laying dormant due to the Jews fear of further antagonizing the Sumerians the prophet's encouragement worked and the temple reconstruction started up again despite all the opposition and the threats of the Sumerians. Now let's be clear. At this point, the Jews still had the full support and force of King Darius as they had had with the three kings who preceded him. So it wasn't for lack of royal permission. It wasn't for lack of clear direction from God. 
It was for other reasons that the Jews were not rebuilding the temple. And the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, addressed those reasons head on. Thus we're going to take an extensive detour. And we're going to spend some time in the Bible books of Haggai and Zechariah. The lessons and applications to take from them are many and they're important. It is my firm conviction that there is no reasonable means to properly study Ezra and Nehemiah without incorporating Haggai and Zechariah. Because the books of these two prophets supply so much of the needed spiritual context, God's viewpoint, which at times offers a very different perspective from the earthly context, the Jews' viewpoint. Therefore, open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. Now we're going to read all the book of Haggai. It's only two chapters long. All at once. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page... I'm getting there. 771. 771. Follow along with me, please. This is the book of Haggai. We're going to read chapters 1 and 2, which is the entire book. In the second year of Daryavesh, the king, that's Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the following word of Adonai came through Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Yahashua, Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the Cohen Haggadol, the high priest. Here is what Adonai Zebaot says. This people is saying that now isn't the time. The time hasn't yet arrived for God's house to be rebuilt. Then this word of Adonai came through Haggai the prophet. So is now the time for you to be living in your own paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Therefore, here is what Adonai Zevaot says. Think about your life. You sow much, but you bring in little. You eat, but aren't satisfied. You drink, but you never have enough. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who works for a living earns wages that are put into a bag that's full of holes. Here is what Adonai Zevaot says. Think about your life. Go up into the hills and get wood and rebuild the house. I will be pleased with that and then I will be glorified, says Adonai. You looked for much but it came to little and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? asked Adonai. Because my house lies in ruins while every one of you runs to take care of his own house. This is why the sky above you is withheld the dew so that there is none and the land withholds its yield. In fact, I called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, on the wine and the olive oil, on what the ground brings up, on men, animals, on all that the hands produce. Then Zerubbabel, the son of 
Shaltiel and Yahshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest with all the rest of the people, paid attention to what Adonai their God had said and to the words of Haggai the prophet. Since Adonai their God had sent him, and the people were filled with fear in the presence of Adonai. Haggai the messenger of Adonai conveyed this message of Adonai to the people. I am with you, says Adonai. Adonai roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Yehuda, and the spirit of Joshua, Yeshua, uh, Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, and the spirits of all the rest of the people, so that they came and they began to work on the house of Adonai Zebaot, their god. This was on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month of the second year of Dariavesh, the king. Chapter two. On the 21st day of the seventh month, this word of Adonai came through Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the Kohen Haggadol, and to the rest of the people, and say to them, Who among you is left that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Seems like nothing to you, doesn't it? Nevertheless, Zerubbabel, take courage now, says Adonai, and take courage, Yeshua, the son of Yehoshadak, the Kohen Haggadol, and take courage, all you people of the land, says Adonai. Get to work, for I am with you, says Adonai Zebaot. This is in keeping with the word that I promised in a covenant with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains with you. So don't be afraid. For this is what Adonai Zebaot says. It won't be long before one more time I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all of the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will flow in. I will fill this house with glory, says Adonai Zebaot. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says Adonai Zebaot. The glory of this new house will surpass that of the old, says Adonai Zebaot. And in this place I will grant Shalom, says Adonai Zebaot. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Dariavesh, this word of Adonai came through Haggai the prophet. Here's what Adonai Zebaot asks. Ask the Kohanim what the Torah says about this. If someone carries meat that has been set aside as holy in a fold of his cloak, and then he lets his cloak touch bread, stew, wine, olive oil, or any other food, does that food become holy too? And the priest answered, no. And then Haggai asked, if someone who is unclean from having had contact with a corpse touches any of these food items, will they become unclean? And the priest answered, they become unclean. Haggai then said, that is the condition of this people. That is the condition of this nation before me, says Adonai. That is the condition of everything their hands produce so that anything they offer there is unclean. Now please, from this day on, keep this in mind. Before you began laying stones on each other to rebuild the temple of Adonai throughout the whole time, when someone approached a 20-measure pile, 20 pile of grain, he found only 10. And when he came to the wine press to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck you with blasting winds and mildew and hail on everything your hands produced, but you still wouldn't return to me says Adonai. 
So please keep this in mind from this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of Adonai's temple was laid. Consider this. There's no longer any seed in the barn, is there? And the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate tree, and the olive oil, olive tree, they produced nothing yet, right? However, from this day on, I will bless you. The word of Adonai came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month as follows. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overturn the chariots and the people riding them. them. The horses and their riders will fall, each of them by the sword of his brother. And when that day comes, says Adonai Zebaot, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant. The son of Shealtiel, says Adonai, and I will wear you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says Adonai, Zebaot. Notice that the opening verse says that the first word from God that Haggai received to give to the Jews was in the second year of King Darius. Thus we get a good solid stake in the ground for the timing of Ezra chapter 5. Since the immediate result of Haggai and Zechariah's messages to Zerubbabel and the other Jews was that they began work on the temple again. This means that the work restarted in earnest about 520 or 521 BC. Or around 35 years after the Jews were freed by King Cyrus of Persia and the first group of Jewish exiles exiles arrived back into Judah. So for 35 years, the Jews had been successfully frustrated in their efforts to rebuild the temple. They were frustrated by the Sumerians. And this frustration did not involve any of the kings of Persia backing away from their commitment to the Jews to encourage them to rebuild. I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. Essentially, what we're going to find, especially in the book of the prophet Haggai, is God's view of the real reason that the temple work had laid dormant for so long. Verse 2 quotes the reason that the Jewish people give for not rebuilding the temple. That is, we're seeing the earthly human viewpoint. And it is this. Here is what Adonai Zevaot says. This people is saying, now's not the time. The time hasn't arrived for Adonai's house to be rebuilt. What we have here is long-term procrastination and paralysis. Nothing could be more human than for people who face strong opposition to something, especially when it's something God's ordained us to do, than to declare that this opposition must be a sign from God that it's not yet time to act. So, they sit on their hands and they wait. For what exactly? It's never quite clear. It is not only Christians who often think that if God has ordered something that He will make the pathway easy and fast. 
as in Ezra's day and in today's Jews, they too often think that we just need to wait and pray until all the obstacles in front of us are removed before we move forward. That said, it would be unreasonable to deny that sometimes it is possible that the opposition has such complete control over the situation that indeed the task can't be carried on no matter how unlimited our efforts might be. However, the other side of the coin is that more often than not, the task can be carried out. It's only that to attempt it in the present circumstances involves danger, risk, maybe some discomfort, or the possibility, heaven forbid, that we become unpopular with those whose opinions matters the most to us. For the Jews who have returned to Judah, they are saying, now isn't the time. And that's mainly because the Sumerians are making their lives so difficult. The Sumerians are threatening the Jews in some undefined ways not to take the unilateral action to rebuild their temple. Now, no doubt these threats varied from refusing to trade with them to not selling them supplies to just daily harassment, maybe all the way up to threatening physical harm. Thus, the Jews were afraid. And we learned that back in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 4. Then the people of the land began discouraging the people of Judah in order to make them afraid to build. And while no doubt fear drove the Jews to stop building for 35 years, there were other factors as well. And, as it turns out, the bulk of the Jews simply lost interest in the building project. And they turned to satisfying their own needs and wants. So, in Haggai verse 4, the Lord, through his prophet Haggai, lays a damning accusation upon them. Chapter 1 verse 4 of Haggai says, So is now the time for you to be living in your own paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This house means God's house. Now I can only imagine the shocked faces and the puzzled looks of, Who? Me? Oh, you don't mean me. Those Jews who heard Haggai's scathing oracle from Jehovah probably looked on in disbelief. For one thing, it had been a long time since the prophet of God had come to the Jews. It had been about 70 years since Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel had issued warnings and, and hopes of and proclamations of hope and restoration. Haggai, you see, was the first prophet to arise since the Jews released from their Babylonian captivity. But it's important to recognize that this accusation from God is aimed more at the clan leaders, at the wealthy, than it is at the common folks or the Levites or the priests. Paneled houses refer to luxury homes that have wood paneling on the interior for ornamentation. This is enormously expensive as wood generally had to be imported all the way from the forests of Lebanon. And as we discussed a couple of lessons ago, 
while there were those zealous and pious Jews who returned with the lofty and the high-minded goal of restoring the priesthood and the temple and a Torah-based worship and lifestyle, there were others who came back to Judah, the heads of their father's clans, whose primary goal was to reclaim their family land holdings that they had been forced to abandon as much as 70 years earlier. Those folks hid their true intentions under a veil of spirituality. But what they wanted was not a renewed relationship with God, rather a renewed personal prosperity. As Solomon so wisely and pragmatically pointed out, there's nothing new under the sun. A spiritualized rationalizing and insincerity has always been part of mankind's ways. In our day, we have within the church a a creeping and dangerous virus that is commonly called the prosperity doctrine, also known as the prosperity gospel. The idea is that God's purpose for all of his faithful followers is that our earthly dreams of wealth and material possessions are to be met. You want a new Mercedes? You know what? God wants it for you too. You want a raise at work? God wants that for you too. Is your dream to retire early and have lots of money? to spend traveling to exotic places. God intends to give it to you because He loves you. So why don't you have all of these things now? Because you don't have enough faith. And often that lack of faith is expressed by you not giving enough to your church. The bottom line is that the prosperity doctrine essentially makes our walk with the Lord all about obtaining personal wealth. Of course it's disguised in an aura of spirituality because we show up at church regularly, we donate our time and our money, and we have a good grasp of Christian lingo that we use on everybody daily. And we apply it to everything we're involved in. This is what the Lord is accusing the Jewish leaders of in the book of Haggai. They may indeed want a rebuilt temple, but far more they prefer wealth and personal comfort. See, here's the irony of it all. The more that we see believers insisting on the attainment of personal wealth as a sign of their faithfulness to God and thus God's reward to them in return, the more believers that we see never achieving their dreams, living unhappy and unvictorious lives, or walking away from their faith, disheartened and disillusioned with the Lord. And if we pay close attention to God's word, and especially here in Haggai, we find that in whatever age... Whatever label the prosperity doctrine might go by, the Lord does the opposite of what we hope for when our hope is centered on personal wealth. The Lord often takes away and frustrates us instead. He holds back blessing and victory 
When the Lord sees that our goal in a relationship with Him is self-centered and not God-centered, well, get ready for a bumpy ride. So let's reread just a couple of verses of Haggai chapter 1 that exposes the falsehood of the prosperity doctrine and it also reminds us that Yehovah knows us for who we are and not just the pretty Christian veneer that we don for public consumption. Open your Bibles up again to Haggai 1. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. Haggai 1 verses 5 through 8. Therefore, here is what Adonai Zeva Oat says. Think about your life. You sow much, but you bring in little. You eat, you aren't satisfied. You drink, but never have enough. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. He who works for a living earns wages that are put into a bag full of holes. Here's what Adonai Zeva Oat says. Think about your life. Go up into the hills and get wood and rebuild the house. I will be pleased with that. Then I will be glorified, says Adonai. Think about your life, says the Lord. In other words, pull your head out of the sand. Look around you. Take notice of what's happening. Consider your circumstances. Separate your desires and your actions from what the results are. Compare God's principles with what you're striving for. It's not that you're lazy and dormant. Rather, it's that you're all motion. But you have little to show for it. Indeed, you're out furiously sowing and planting. But the harvest is meager. You have enough to eat. But somehow food doesn't satisfy you have plenty to drink. By the way, this is referring to wine. But you can never seem to drink enough to feel good about yourself or to find joy in life. And finally, the more you make, the less you seem to have. No matter how many hours a day you work, you can't get ahead. Frustrating, isn't it? It makes you just want to give up. You have no peace. You have no well-being. You have no shalom. Why is that? Because shalom is a gift from God. And like salvation, it can't be obtained with human efforts. And especially believers, you can't attain shalom if your innermost motivations aren't in line with God's will and His laws and His commandments. So in verse 7, the Lord reiterates, think about your life. Let me put that second admonition in modern terms. Look at what you're doing to yourself. Now, get to work on what I want you to do. Put aside your overriding desires for your own dreams, your personal prosperity, and then when that happens, then I'll be pleased and I will be glorified. Now, not to beat a dead horse, but my brethren, our seeking of personal wealth in God's name does not glorify Him. It glorifies us. 
doing what he asks of us, no matter the personal cost or risk or discomfort, that's what glorifies him. This in no way means that the blessing of personal wealth or abundance is wrong or evil or or ill-deserved. But you know, it's awfully easy to delude ourselves into believing that all we want is what the Lord wants, but in reality, we manipulate everything to try to achieve our own goals and desires of personal satisfaction. And then we get to the crux of the matter as a guy's oracle hits home in verses 9 through 11. The Lord says that because you have not built my house, the temple, but instead you've concentrated on your own personal desires and concerns, your own houses, I have caused you all of this frustration. That's why so little has come from your efforts. You plant the fields, but the rains don't come, so you don't get much in return from your crops. Oh, you work hard. But your olive groves give up precious little oil. Your flocks and herds aren't increasing the way they ought to. Generally, nothing your own hands produce turns out very well. I want to remind you that God is dealing here with His redeemed people. Not with pagans. Not with unbelievers. God is purposefully withholding grace. He is punishing His people's wrong motives. There is no biblical claim that they don't believe in Him. Or they've lost faith in Him. But they have gone astray. And no amount of lame excuses and promises is going to change God's mind. Only proper behavior, guided by proper motivations, will unleash God's blessings. There's something else we need to learn from this. God's bait, His house, it's important to Him. The Jews started out really well upon their return. They were full of enthusiasm and hope. They immediately rebuilt their demolished altar and began reinstituting whatever Torah-ordained festivals and and appointed times and sacrifices were possible within their limited circumstances. The rebuilt altar stood directly in front of those sad ruins of their temple. A constant reminder of that tragedy Unfaithfulness to the Lord produces destruction. Nonetheless, they did all they could and they made do with what they had, however imperfect it might have been. You know, beginning at Mount Sinai, the Lord determined that a sign of the people's zealousness and faithfulness towards Him would be demonstrated visibly and tangibly by means of a tabernacle later on a temple which would be the center point of the life of every Hebrew it was at the temple that God and his people would have fellowship thus when the temple was destroyed so was God's fellowship with his people destroyed at least temporarily 
The end of the exile marked an opportunity for a restored fellowship. And the rebuilding of the temple would be a pledge by the returning Jews to reconstitute the covenant relationship with their God and to do a better job of being faithful to the covenant terms. Until that temple was completed, the fellowship between God and the Jews would not be completed. So let modern believers never think that the rebuilding of the temple of Ezra was something that drove the Jews, but it really just kind of reflected a flawed and wrong-minded attempt to patch up things with the Lord. God commanded and demanded that His house be built quickly upon their return to Judah. To rebuild that temple was an act of obedience, not one of self-gratification. And in Haggai, the Lord has become impatient with the delay due to this cooled zealousness of the returning exiles to proceed with reconstructing his house. Now despite so many errant mainstream denominational doctrines to the contrary, the third temple, Ezekiel's temple that is coming in the near future, is also God-ordained. Let me tell you something else. It's 100% needed to fully restore fellowship with the Lord. It's anything but a sinful desire of mankind's minds or or merely an allegorical, allegorical or a spiritualized reflection of the church. Rather, this new temple is going to be Messiah's palace. It's going to be Yeshua's throne room. Sacrifices will occur there. From there, Yeshua will rule with an iron rod, we're told. Meaning strictly, without tolerance for disobedience. The priesthood will be operable once again. The law of Moses will be fully restored and in all aspects of it will be able to be obeyed. Unlike the circumstances of our day. When so many laws can't be fully observed no matter how much some of us might want it to be otherwise. I want to put this issue of the temple in another way. Essentially, the kingdom of God on earth was suspended from its destruction of the temple until the temple was rebuilt and put back into operation by the returnees from the Babylonian exile. In our time, until the third temple is reconstructed and Messiah returns to rule from it, the kingdom of God will not reach its fullest extent and purpose. The construction of Ezekiel's temple and the return of Messiah aren't coincidental. The temple must exist and it must precede Christ. At the current moment, the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is coming. And yet, it is already here in the sense that it is present within Yeshua's worshipers in the form of the Holy Spirit. But with 
the certain advent of the coming third temple and then the return of Yeshua, then every element of the kingdom of God will be manifested. And indeed, the kingdom of God will be worldwide and in full glory without limitation. To their credit, Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the Jewish people listened to Haggai. And they acted upon God's oracle. Verse 12 explains that the Jews now moved in the fear of the presence of Adonai. That is, their fear of the Lord was now greater than their fear of the Sumerians. But the Lord added one more critical and comforting piece of information. I am with you. The Lord's 70-year abandonment of the Jews was over. So on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of King Darius, the Jews courageously ignored the politics They ignored the threats of the Sumerians and of the local politicians and they started once again to build. I want to close today with this challenge to my dear friends in Israel. Do what Zerubbabel and the Jews of the Babylonian exile finally did. Do it now. Ignore the politics. Ignore the threats. Build the temple There is nothing except those politics and threats that are stopping them. Nothing. They have the money. They have the temple furnishings. They have the menorah. They have trained priests. They have the building materials. They have the cornerstone. What they lack at the moment is the courage and the fortitude to do what is right in God's eyes and to stop appeasing their enemies as well as their so-called friends and to stop pleasing themselves. What they want is for the world to accept them before they act. What they want is for the USA or the EU or the UN to throw their weight behind the building of a new temple. They have possessed the Temple Mount since 1967. Just a little under a half century. They gave away control of the Temple Mount to the Muslims as a political accommodation to the West. But for the sake of appeasement in politics and for not making their lives more difficult, the zeal to build the temple has slowly devolved into little more than lip service. And just like in the oracle of God through Haggai to Zerubbabel, modern Israelis need to think about your lives. They need to stand up. They need to take a good look how things are panning out for them on their current trajectory. Not so hot. Israel has given up land. And boy, they paid dearly in blood for it. 
What have they gained? They've given up a measure of sovereignty by trying to please the United States and Europe. All that's happened is they're now being asked to give up more. No matter how hard they try to please the world, they always end up as the bad guys and on the losing end. Perhaps it's time they trust God. Perhaps it's time what they should have done 50 years ago. Build His house. The third temple, Ezekiel's temple, and by doing so, restore fellowship with the God of Israel. We'll continue with the prophets of Guy and Zechariah next week.